Welcome to Reinventing Education, the podcast where we take apart education and put it back together in a more meaningful way. I'm Rob McLeod. In this episode, we inquire into what a school looks like when it centers itself around the value of self-discipline. We've started an inquiry. What is a school education for? A school education involves systematic instruction, which provides students with information or skills. The information and skills are provided with three intended outcomes, that they will cultivate citizenship, self-development, and occupational preparation. How and what this looks like, well, that's informed by values. You see, values inform what we see as being important in life. Therefore, people with different values will have different ideas about what is important when it comes to citizenship, self-development, and occupational preparation. Our values inform how we conduct ourselves individually and in groups. So we've presented this thesis that four different values are informing school education. Self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. Each value is at the core of a different kind of society. Each value serves a different kind of economy. Each value generates a particular kind of citizenship. And each value has its own ideas and what it means to develop yourself. Thus, each value provides a different kind of school education. Once an individual transitions out of a given school system, they should be ready to participate in that society's workforce and citizenry. Has school education changed over time? Yes, and this is due to the four values in education, which have emerged one after the other. Let's begin our story by exploring what a school instilling self-discipline looks like. As a reminder from our previous podcast, self-discipline is defined as the correction or regulation of oneself for the sake of improvement. The intent behind a self-discipline-centric education system is as follows. Students leave our system demonstrating self-discipline so that as a citizen, they demonstrate the ability to comply and be obedient, which prepares them for an occupation in the military or industrial-focused economy. Historical Context Our story begins in 1763. See, this is the big bang of compulsory schooling. It's 1763, the King of Prussia, Frederick the Great, releases the Generalland Schulreglement, a lovely German word meaning the general school regulations. These were authored by Johann Julius Hecker, a German educator who established the first Realschule, or practical high school, and Prussia's first teacher education institution. Why is this significant? Well, this is the first time in history that a government has decided to create an education system with the intention that it be compulsory for all of its young citizens. Now, of course, schools existed prior to this, but prior to 1763 in Prussia, it wasn't compulsory for all citizens, and it was not provided by the government. Typically, it was provided regionally or through the church. From this point forward, other countries considered developing an education system paid for by taxation compulsory for everyone, 
and free for the student to enter. This system required all young citizens, both girls and boys, to be educated from age 5 to age 14. Students would be provided with a basic outlook on Christian religion, basic level reading and writing, and opportunities for choral singing. These activities would be based on a regulated state-provided curriculum of textbooks. This education would be carried out by teachers who were most often former soldiers. It took until the 1830s for the Prussian school system to have the following characteristics, which became the model that other countries referenced when starting their own nationwide education systems. Free primary schooling. Professional teachers trained in specialized colleges. A basic salary for teachers. An extended school year to involve the children of farmers. Funding for building schools. Supervision of the schools at both the national and classroom level to ensure quality instruction. Curriculum inculcating strong national identity and a focus on science. And secular instruction but religion was a topic included in the curriculum. Former Prussian minister Friedrich von Schroeter once remarked at this time, Prussia was not a country with an army, but an army with a country. The development of the education system in Prussia was so closely tied to its role in serving the advancement of their military. Occupational Preparation Let's look at how this self-discipline-centric approach to education impacted occupational preparation, citizenship, and self-development. The Prussian model of school served occupational preparation in two ways. First, building a stronger military by starting training at 5 instead of waiting until 13, and building a stronger workforce for the emerging industrial economy as serfdom declined. So how does instilling self-discipline prepare people for military service or factory work? Strong militaries and industrial factories require individuals who can regulate themselves and be obedient to orders. The more self-discipline an individual has, the better they are for the compliance required in the military. Compliance to standards, rules, and laws. A military is strongest when it is united and its structure works together. In part, this requires individuals to be disciplined enough to set aside their own agendas for the larger group. A military is weakened by individual soldiers not contributing to the shared plan. Pursuing your own agenda and interests that don't contribute to the shared cause diminishes the effectiveness of the team. You need predictability and to know you can trust and rely on the other individual members in your group. While work in a factory also requires uniformity, workers on an assembly line need to work like machines. You must comply with the directions you are given for the process to work. A factory works best with its parts working in sync. If people are their parts, they must agree to carry out their part. In simple terms, a military and industrial factory are like well-designed machines. The people within each needed to be pieces of the machine, parts of the system, and you had to comply and be obedient for this to work. This is not the only thing that's required, but
but it is a key component. If you show self-discipline and are obedient to what is asked of you, this system does well. We have a reliable citizenry, and you won't be punished by either of them. We must keep in mind that this was a very different world. Of course we share our humanity with those from the past, but our worlds are very, very different. The life of an adult and a child in Prussia in the late 1700s, early 1800s, barely reflect what we experienced in 2018. Here are a few factors to consider. The average life expectancy in Europe at the time, in 1770, was between the ages of 35 to 40, compared to approximately 79 to 84 in 2018. On average, these people lived lives that were half as long as ours. What about work? Well, the three main ways to make a living were through industrial labor, farming, or military service. 1763 is still more than half a century before the signing of the Child Labor Law of 1839, meaning from the time school was started, there would still be 60-plus years of child labor in industrial factories. Unsafe child labor was not only fair game, but it was seen as an important part of contributing to society, the economy, and a family's well-being. But even this child labor law only stated that those younger than nine could no longer work in factories, and it merely limited the labor of youths under 16 to just 10 hours a day and outlawed night and Sunday shifts for children. This means this reform meant that a 10-year-old couldn't be worked more than 60 hours a week during day shifts and that they had to be given Sunday off. Could you imagine sending a 10-year-old off to this kind of life in 2018? It took until the 1830s for school to become compulsory for children, which shifted them out of the workforce, which improved adult employment. So as children were being pulled into this compulsory schooling, what did this school experience look like back then? I've had the pleasure of not only visiting some of these restored and renovated school buildings, but I've actually experienced some simulated classes with actors. Within the self-discipline-centric school system, we see a teacher as a disciplinarian, a student as an obedient learner, the classroom being engineered for uniformity, and the teaching methods centered around reciting. Classroom and school as engineered for uniformity. Often these are one-room schoolhouses or small buildings. There are rows of chairs and desks, uncomfortable chairs and desks, often bolted to the floor, which requires you to face the teacher and blackboard when seated in them. There are pictures of military generals and government officials on the walls. There are often prayers or national or regional anthems written on the wall along with a coat of arms. There are often school uniforms or very strict dress codes. There are dunce caps to humiliate those who can't meet the group expectations. The room is designed for a uniform, similar experience for all students who enter. There are bells to indicate transitions, mirroring the industrial and military workplace. Students are grouped together by age range and birth date, most often boys on the left side, girls on the right side of the classroom, youngest in the front, 
and oldest in the back. Now there may be a separate track or a separate building for children who will go on to occupy their prestigious roles in society thanks to who their parents or family are. Let's shift our attention to the role of the teacher within this structure. Teacher as disciplinarian. The teacher is the authority in the room. Disobedience to their authority is met with punishment. A lack of self-discipline is met with punishment. It is an expectation that you are physically harmed for misbehavior, academic errors, or not completing work. This punishment is distributed through straps, sticks, and whips. It often happens publicly in front of others to serve as an example. The teacher is there to share information and skills, but possibly more so, they are there to instill self-discipline through a fear of punishment. And what about the role of the student? The student as obedient learner. The student is seeking to meet the teacher's academic and social expectations to avoid punishment. They do as they're told or else are punished for it. Their main motivation for showing self-discipline is to avoid being punished. Self-discipline is not celebrated and rewarded. Rather, it's simply expected. Anything that deviates from the ability of a student to control themselves results in physical punishment. Teaching as repetition. When order and obedience are in place, the teaching happens. This teaching typically centered around repetition, repeating and reciting information, quotes, songs, rhymes, poems, and routines. Students learn by repetition and reciting back what they have been told. The teacher models and the students repeat and recreate what was shown to them. Memorization is the most important skill. Your personal opinion or critiques are not a priority in your schoolwork. The best thinking has already been done. You are not adding to that body of work. You are upholding, maintaining, and ensuring its upkeep. You are expected to keep pace with the group, regardless of whether it is too easy or too difficult for you. Marks for achievement were actually not given out at this point historically. The only known report cards at this time indicated the number of days a student was absent and occasionally the number of lines they memorized from a particular text, which is often the Bible. Just being there and going through what was presented was viewed as sufficient. Grades and progress were not tracked. The punishment of not keeping up was deemed enough. How did this school system match the society? This kind of schooling meets the needs of a society that tells themselves the following story. Our society is static. The way things are will not change. There are clear hierarchies, and you have a place. You are part of a system. You are a piece. Fulfill your role in it. You should just be a good member of society. It's really all about fitting into a solid system. The current way of life isn't going to change. This system is static. The authority and power of military and industry and those in power are a given. We know what the world is going to be like, so we can prepare you for it in school. We must maintain what we have. This way of life must be adhered to. You are part of this team 
making our way of life happen. You're a part of this team, making our way of life possible. Self-disciplined individuals, among many other things, are a good fit for complying with the standards and rules of a society. A society who realizes that setting boundaries and mutual agreements cause fewer problems between its own citizens. Prussia and many other societies at this time shared many of the following characteristics. Control and authority structures. Obedience from a sense of duty. Values, effort, responsibility, and shows of discipline. Rules, rights, and duties. A willingness to sacrifice for a greater cause. One element of society is that it is influenced by values. Upholding these values requires individuals to either enhance or diminish certain parts of themselves. This enhancing and diminishing of how one conducts themselves brings them into accordance with a value. And this value influences the way that things should be. When this happens, it's for the benefit of a system, the benefit of a citizenry, and the, even the benefit of the individual within that system and culture. Self-discipline and obedience on the part of the individual, the cutting away of their ambitions, ensures a functioning military and industrial economy, which in turn supports and ensures the well-being of the individual's and groups in a society, but not without its costs. In summary, with the birth of compulsory government school education, we saw the emergence of a school education that inculcated self-discipline. This served to develop obedience and compliance in students, who would often go on to work in the military or industrial factories within a society that had a power structure that appeared static and unchanging. The classroom was engineered for uniformity. The teacher was a disciplinarian. The student an obedient learner, and the approach to teaching involved repetition. It was believed that society wasn't going to change much. It is the job of the individual to fit into the already established system and conform to it. Failure to do so often was met with hardship and punishment. Thus, a school system emerged that emphasized the role of self-discipline and obedience. When this wasn't met, physical, social, and emotional punishments were seen as just means of correcting what was wrong. This punishment, in part, was intended to serve the individual. Someone lacking self-discipline and obedience wouldn't fit the system, and therefore, would likely be excluded and left behind. The value of self-discipline, obedience, and the needs of the industrial and military workforce led to the first iteration of what a school education looks like and what it is for. Wow, we really don't know how to start this portion of the podcast. But we've talked about how we need to sound much easier going or more engaging uh, because we've been sounding like we're on slow motion when we talk. A little bit. I think it's, it's a little bit of um, nerves and wanting to be clear. Wanting and for me, to... wanting to be perfect, wanting to say everything just right. 
and I'd like to be wise. I'd like to be thought of as a wise old beardy man. Mm. So with that awkward start, we're into the second half of the podcast where Ren and I kind of pick apart things. But as a few listeners have kindly noted, they want us to sound more relaxed and like we've had a beer or two before we sit down and, and talk about hardcore ideas. Yeah. I, I'm not quite up to taking it to actually having a beer before starting. Or like a, no. one of those drunk history things, as no. humorous as they are. But um, I do think, you know, taking the sticks out of our asses would be a, would be a good start. So I, I think like have, what we talked about was having a, just a few minutes here, almost decompression motivation and just a little bit of a warm-up like we do when we when we meet each other and have our real life uh, stop and chats the mm. snc um and the obvious thing um which i mentioned already is that you've just been to the integral conference um and you told me quite a lot about it uh, interestingly a lot about other people's presentations and not so much about your own and i do want to hear a lot more about yours, but tell me, tell me your, your take on the Integral Conference. Yeah, so I just got back from the Integral European Conference in Schiafok in Hungary, and this is the third time they've had the conference, third time I've been lucky enough to attend. Um, yeah, I think it was 600 people um, from multiple disciplines, a handful of us from education, lots of people from leadership training, uh, healthcare, architecture, essentially name a discipline, and it was represented there in some fashion. Um, yeah, in short, just some of the most interesting talks I've ever heard, really powerful workshops. And as far as my work went, I did like a 20-minute talk, kind of like a TED Talk presentation. Uh, and that, for me personally, felt like the best presentation I've ever done. I had a lot of it wasn't just me thinking that. I had a lot of really positive feedback about bringing in some of this integral theory into the classroom and forming what we do. So that was really exciting. Met a lot of really interesting people I'm excited to keep in touch with. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, did a 75-minute workshop, essentially just sharing some of the writing work that I do with students in my class. Um, and that was also well-received. But interestingly, although I presented it as, hey, here's how you can teach a nine-year-old how to write a really good story. Out of the 25 or so people that were in the room, nearly half of them approached me saying like, you also get that this is a self-coaching tool, right? Like, I just got over some of my own hurdles and barriers and blockages by writing the hero's journey for my character. Um, so that was really interesting. And I think it's been the indicator light I maybe needed to realize that it's worth investing some more time and seeing how this could also be applied to coaching. So I mean they look it it's it has developed over the last three or four years and it it is something that I haven't come across in any other in other any other place in education where this kind of preoccupation that you've had and I've had to to an extent with the hero's journey as a storytelling means and the way you have taking it inside the classroom and also into your kind of workshops. And yeah, of course you knew already that it was this, um, not self-help, self-development kind of tool. Um, and of course, um, 
that's what an adult who's already in that frame of mind is going to see. Whereas a, a student would view exactly the same presentation as a, um, an interesting, fun, and more uh, structured way to tell a story. And um, I mean, we're definitely going to get into that hero's journey archetype and how it fits in with education and with um, all of these big picture values and systems. Um, so that's awesome. And I know you could talk for a long, long time about the, the fantastic stuff that you, that, um, you came across, especially the, um, the facilitation of, um, of, of group work. And, um, I really hope we find a time soon in the podcast to spend quite a bit of time digging into that. Yeah. Yeah. I would like that for a, for a future episode for sure. Um, in short for now, I'd just say they hold this conference every two years. If you're even remotely interested in integral, if you can get to Europe or you are in Europe, I just highly recommend it. It's an incredible gathering of people, incredible information is shared and just really cool experiences hanging out with, with a group of, with a gaggle of people like that. It's nice. totally not a cult that will indoctrinate you and, and steal you away from your family like uh, Brian Dennehy's son in that movie. Mm-hmm. O'Leary, for those of you who don't know much about Integral Theory or the Aqua Map, O'Leary is always concerned that at some point I'm going to pull off my mask, kidnap his kids, and realize this has been a cult all along. Um, that moment it's might come... It's tongue-in-cheek. I, 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 I know that it's a set of um, really cool analytical tools, but I am just so cynical and skeptical about any group, any group or any theory. <laughs> <laughs> Making you a, a great person to have at a party. Oh, yeah. All right, let's get this, let's get this started right. because this is, um, this is where the boxes and cans of Pandora's worms just get boom it's just this is the first three episodes were cool and good to talk about and setting up but this is where we're like okay let's have an actual look at school um what i refer to as the bloomin school what you um, based on my very simple understanding of the spiral dynamics that you've introduced into this kind of conversation yeah, and if people are familiar with either spiral dynamics, what we're talking about is blue, or if you're um, familiar with the work of Frederick Leloux in reinventing organizations, this is often referred to as amber um, organizations. But if you don't know either of those, that's fine. You can kind of just enter with what we've talked about here. Yeah, and I won't jokingly you know, refer to it as Blumen School too often, because I think that's also not particularly helpful. The core is that idea of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I'm just very, very briefly going to recap where I am at with my understanding of um, the podcast so far. So we really want to stress the idea that school and education is there to um, impart or to um, develop information and skills within students there's a spectrum of how that is done, different kinds of instruction. And there are three main goals of school to develop citizenship, to uh, perform occupational preparation or to get you ready to work, and to also 
self-improve, to become this, um, to become, a better person in in your own kind of way um, and the the way each school system does this and the way each society does this is based very heavily on their values and what they what they say is important in life mm-hmm. and so this first episode is just exploring the first of four values that we're going to make the case for four values that inform very different approaches to education. And yeah, I don't think any society or any school would actually be able to sit down and go, Oh yeah, well, we're a self-disciplined school. This isn't articulated. This is us looking at everything that's out there and finding a map you can overlay on this. Yeah, and and by its nature, we will have to reduce, we'll have to simplify, but we're trying not to lose too much. (laughs) Clearly, each school, each group within that school and each individual will have slightly different values. And so we are looking at kind of the median or mean value, the value that is prioritized, especially within the system on a systemic level, which which of the values is dominant. Um, and you often describe this as the water that we swim in. And I guess the, what, a big part of the podcast is to say that if you have an explicit awareness of the value that you are um, acting on, you will be able to interact in a way that is more positive or better for everybody involved. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd extend it too to say that like what we're training you to do, what we're inculcating within you within the school experience is a match to a workforce and citizenry out there in the world. So this value of self-discipline is in service of compliance or obedience with a economic system, a workforce and a citizenry that's out there that also values self-discipline and obedience. Yeah, and so I won't and go we, off on, And we'll make the case for three very different values um, in the upcoming three episodes. But we're starting here historically because this is where, this is what the first types of school looked like. The first types of compulsory government-sponsored schools had the, these characteristics about them. Yeah, and I won't go off on too much of a tangent here, but it... It will be the case that if you are inside a system or looking back historically at a system, you may have very different values. And so you're looking at that system through your own values filter. If you are somebody who really values sensitivity at the core of your values or even self-development, when you look back at this historical system, which still exists in many places and in many ways, even within mainstream um, um, British education, for example, you will you will already be, uh, I guess, making judgments and making conclusions based on your own values. And I think what we're trying to point out here is to look at it somewhat objectively, if possible. 
and say this system was operating from a value of self-discipline. So let's try and lay out the facts and let's maybe look at um, how they did that, why they did that, and how effective it was. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mentioned this in my first little chat part there, but we're talking about a very different world here. You know, we're talking about basically the time span between like 1763 to the 1830s. We're talking about largely Prussia, but the rest of the world as well. And what childhood and what adulthood looked like then differs dramatically from what childhood and adulthood look like now. Um, in That's part, a massive point, yeah. And in part, school was an influence that's got us to where we are in terms of a society. So um, I think the self-discipline-centric school that I've tried to kind of articulate in this first part comes across as sounding really harsh and um, like just abusive, like very punishment-centric um, and really punishing people for getting out of line. And I imagine we'll just naturally talk about this in the next little while, but... I've got it in my notes quite extensively about how harsh you begin to sound at certain times. If like you can in your voice hear like, this is, this is bad. This is bad. This is a bad system. I I cannot, you know, this is hurting me to describe this system. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, and I, I, to be fair, I don't think I did it justice in this first part was to point out that like, you know, as uncool as getting wraps on the knuckles or a belt to the bottom would be back then, they were training self-discipline and compliance in you. Because when you leave school and enter the workforce, the consequences for not following what you're supposed to do in a dangerous industrial environment is way more serious. Yeah, but I don't... Marks. I don't buy that it was done for that reason. I will come to that later in my notes too, but I think it was very heavily in favor of the society, not the individual. So it wasn't like, mm -hmm. we're training you to be disciplined so you don't cut off your fingers when you go into the factory. No, mm -hmm. it, it certainly would, that was not a main drive. But one thing I do want to point out is that I don't know if you know this idea of the Overton window in politics. That's where the... That's kind of where the the window where discussion can happen. And over time, it will drift to the left or the right, meaning that a view that is mainstream in one era, if the Overton window um, veers to the left, as it often does, um, views that before were mainstream will now become far right, extreme. Um, and I, I think we see a similar thing with our values in this as our values, I mean, I would argue that going from self-discipline to sensitivity to development is a drift to the left politically. And so I would say that these views that were once mainstream are now seen as quite far right. The idea of reintroducing um, you know, physical punishment that's quite a, that's quite a, a far-right conservative idea. And that's because of this kind of overturn window of education moving over the course of the last 100, 150 years 
uh, more towards a political left, um, humanistic kind of way of thinking. But but it is important to to know that it hasn't happened all over the world in the same way, mm-hmm. and and a more conservative culture may still have many of these things very heavily in place. And of course, my experience is in Japan and the the culture in Japan still has many, many of these things that you're talking about very heavily embedded in place. I mean, physical punishment is far less, um, far less um, common these days, but um, but in, in England, for example, um, it, it was illegal before I even entered school. And I started mm-hmm. school in the mid seventies. So this is, um, I don't, I certainly wouldn't use the word um, kind of backward or, or regressive or whatever, but it's important to, to say that these, these values are not necessarily um, historical ones. They're embedded mm. deeply in all of our societies. And maybe I'll just bookmark this because we're going to return to this multiple times over the next three to four episodes. The four values we're highlighting in education, the ones that came first have not gone away. They are still very much here. Um, In Integral, they often use the line transcend and include. Like, I think what's happened is remnants of this self-discipline school are definitely still around for sure, but certain parts of it have been transcended or left behind. And in most cultures, the physical punishment portion of it has been left behind. And I I would imagine if you go back and take my 19-minute talk at the start of this podcast Mm. and you cut out the parts where I talked about physical punishment, it would actually probably look quite similar to a lot of what happens in mainstream schooling still today, or even slightly more traditionalist cultures. I, I know in 2012, um, I won't quote my friend or where they were teaching, but they had taught abroad and they were straight up told by the head of school, like, no, no, you don't have to talk this through with the kids. Like you are allowed to hit them here. Hmm. And this was like a, this wasn't some backwood school. This was like an international school environment. But that was just one yeah. of the norms of the culture in that country that, no, you are still totally allowed to hit the kids here in this class. And that's, you know, five, six years ago that my friend was teaching that. Yeah, I mean, clearly from our conversation, we both view that as way beyond the pale. That This is not something mm-hmm. that we feel should be happening. But that no. transcend and include that idea that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that the conservative, I'd say, in England, the conservative government or a conservative um, supporting group, this conversation of going back to self-discipline, to going back to basics, to raising standards, we just hear it again and again and again. And, and, and um, the conversation... I'd even, I'd even challenge it, though. I think the raising standards piece, that comes in with the next value we're going to talk about. It, it, it can. It can. When we talk about the, the school that's based on achievement, yes, I think it very heavily comes in, but I think it's tied in within the conversation. And this is something I'll come to a little bit later in my notes here of how 
education itself is tied intrinsically to moral development. One of the big reasons for starting the schools was moral development. Um, and so when we say raising standards, it, it's kind of a, a bundle of a kind of a, a bundle of ideas together. And one of which is this kind of moral backbone and the idea that if you raise standards in reading, in writing, in behavior, in instruction, it, it, it leads to a, a stronger moral character. I think that's very key to the, to this self-discipline school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I'll leave this here and then let's dive deep into the self-discipline thing. The one other meta conversation I think we'll have in this podcast and over the next three is none of these values are sufficient in and of themselves. There's a reason why the schools continue to evolve, to continue to change because a self-discipline, obedience-centric school on its own was not enough to meet all of the needs. And over time, that changed. And we'll also highlight how the other three values that emerged later aren't the totality. They're not the perfect answer, the perfect fit. There's been a progression, and each one of them is missing something one of the previous ones had. But it also brings something that the previous ones were missing. So there's kind of this dance of each version, each value-centric version of education we're going to talk about has a strength and has a downside and has stuff it's missing that one of the other values has. But that's common across all of them. Yeah, and I think in, in we, we've kind of, we're kind of playing into a narrative where we build towards that, that development um, value that then integrates the three previous ones without looking at any of them as uh, negative in of themselves. So that is the that is where I'd say this episode, the next one, and the one after will be setting up those three parts that are very much in conflict in today's world and historically, due to them being different facets of society and representing different views strongly held inside society. And so then that fourth episode, the teal kind of school, which is based on this value of development, will be aiming to integrate the three and transcend by including all of the best ideas, um, like Miles Davis. Spoiler alert. We just gave Miles it away. Davis is going to be very heavily in the next <laughs> 20 or 30 episodes. Um, all right, let's, let's dig into it then. So, we have got this school that is based on the idea of self-correction, self-regulation for self-improvement with the belief that you will then improve the society that you are a part of. Society and our workforce will be improved, maintained and improved by having self-disciplined people who can be compliant and obedient to the authority structures already in place. Yes. In this static industrial military um, world of the 1850s to the 1930s, 1940s, that's ostensibly... And previous to that as well. I would say I didn't set specific dates, but I think we're essentially talking from like 1760s onward. And 
there's no like there's no true historic events where this ends. This isn't a war and there's a change of government where you can talk about world politics. Sure. Like, oh, and then this regime came in and then everything was different. These, each of these values shift into each other more like blending juices in a cup, like blending sure. colors together than they do like definite eras. But I'm, I'm basically saying this self-discipline centric education begins to pop up 1760s and is meeting the the world it's in this kind of industrial military world up until the 1880s somewhere where we start to see more of a transition to the next value yeah it's very hard to put those um those numbers on it and i've because we still have industrial economies we still of course we do in 2018 have a military that values and needs these yeah values as well so this hasn't gone away it's just gotten more complex as society brings more values online absolutely and so this idea in 1763 of compulsory education to 14 years old paid for by the state which didn't really happen in britain until the 1830s so you're talking, uh, you know, a good 50 years after Prussia had started this. Um, but, but that period is where this idea of compulsory state education just came in for the very first time. And interestingly, importantly, the value underpinning that entire system when it came in was one of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. That's just a, a summing up, but um, would you say that that is essentially what's happened? You said what took me 17 minutes to say. Well done. Well, you did it really well, and I just uh, threw away all of the words I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think, you know, I, I foc- you, you focused heavily in your research on the Prussian introduction. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I focused heavily on the British, and there were a lot of parallels. The US, the United States, took the Prussian system and essentially implemented it as closely as, uh, closer than any other country as far as I can see, which is really interesting because the US um, culturally is not the, is not the, uh, the army with a country. It is not that, although it was a military, you know, it, it has conservative elements and militarized elements. It also has this very, very strong sense of freedom and individuality. So I won't go too far down that, but I found that it was really interesting that that the U.S. just said, yeah, we love this. Boom, we're going to implement it. Yeah, it in the countries that it showed up in, it was beneficial to those countries. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Like people didn't adopt this because it was a drag on their citizenry or their economy. The countries that picked this up found that it enhanced their societies and economy, even if, yeah, that first value of self-discipline might not have been in alignment exactly with the citizenry, but bringing out individuals who had more of this seemed to be a positive. Yeah, and I, I can't avoid the political and cultural nature of the country that it's, it's in because the struggle 
in Britain, there was a struggle, an ongoing struggle. It, 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 the way you describe Prussia was like, hey, we think this would be great. Let's do it. Oh, it's done now. It's great. It wasn't that simple in Britain. And there is this kind of myth of the factory model that we um, that the schools opened, the, the children came in, and we came out the other side as a really strong industrialized nation. It was you know, far, far more complex than that. Um, and, and again, tied in very heavily in Britain to this idea that the schooling gave a moral background. Because the one question we don't, that just kept popping back up to me early, and I do want, we will get into the details of the school quickly, but why compulsory education? Why, why, why? You know, you write, you, you start asking that question and just you get the answer of when. I was 1833. He was 1759. It's like, no, that's not the question. Why invest all this time, all this energy to pull people in from the fields, from the factories, and force them to have an education, a rote education? Um, learning things that are not directly applicable to their lives. You don't need to look, to know how to read, write, and add if your job is to pick up bits of fluff off the factory floor. That it's not necessary. So, um, just you know, in a minute, I just wanted to get get your thoughts on that. Why did it happen? The simple thing I would just need to do more historical research into this to come up with things that aren't just my own hunches. Um, the one thing I would say is I don't know if there was, this is a question. Let's leave this at a question. Sure. Was there a meeting where these people sat down and said, you know what we need and brainstormed it and worked this out? I don't think that meeting ever happened. I'm going to guess this movement was more or less like the coalescing of probably a near infinite number of social, economic, political, military factors that together pointed that this would be a good way to go or something to worth experimenting on. That's a very important point that over the course of this hundred years, virtually every nation decided, yeah, we need our children to be able to read, write, uh, do maths, have a, a strong uh, self-discipline. And it, it does serve an industrialized nation and it does serve a military uh, nation. But there were many other reasons throwing around it. Like as early as the 1500s, Martin Luther was like, we want to make sure these Christians can read the Bible by themselves. So let's get them reading. Um, there was also this thing that you would, um, you would think maybe is, is a very modern thing of the fear of Western values being eroded by immigrants. But no, like... 150 years ago, you know, there was a, a there was a fear of immigrant values taking over, and on the flip side, there was a fear of Christian values being indoctrinated into a society that maybe wasn't Christian, and whether that's a Church of England versus a Catholic one. But there were all these kind of ideas floating around, um, and and I think it's worth having a good think about it because it's not a given it's like hey why do we have compulsory education why do we have school well why do we breathe why do we drink water yeah but you know we breathe we breathed and drink drank water 
since we evolved <laughs> from single cell organisms, we didn't have schools. We didn't have amoeba schools. Did we, Rob? There were no amoeba schools. <laughs> school, and my point being school is a, as an invention. Mm. And we invented it. Nobody sat down and, and made, the, um, made the plan, uh, for better or worse. But um, it, it, it developed, it evolved, and it exists, and it still exists. And it's pretty new in the grand scheme of things. And so to think of it as the be-all and end-all is, is something that, we, that I definitely want to keep in the front of my mind. This is not the definitive answer. And I think that's a question worth coming back to probably a hundred times over the next hundred episodes. Sure. Um, but just the initial thing is, I think there's a distinction worth making there of the idea of a compulsory school education showed up. Yeah. 1700s, whatever. Na- or let me clarify nationwide nation sponsored compulsory school education pops onto the scene. That's the first time that shows up. But of course, there were the earlier stages of evolution of education. And as long as knowledge and skills <laughs> have been required in humanity, there's been some way to teach those knowledge and skills. Sure. And what we're seeing in this time in history of the 1700s, 1800s, is the first time that we centralized who does that on a nationwide level. Before that, it's been something that's been done regionally, tribally, within your family, as a part of a lineage. But this is the first time we've said, no, we're going to attempt a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Yeah, and that's key. That's absolutely key because the big question that we will come back to again and again is who gets to decide absolutely key in, in education, who decides all of these things. So just jumping back into what um, schools offered in the 1830s in, in Prussia, the first time you had trained teachers, the first times you had school inspectors, the first time you had a curriculum. And, um, this, and to be fair, a government written curriculum. Yeah. Within schools before, of course, there'd be curriculums of what topics would be covered and what you'd explore but this is the first time a government has decided that for its entire populace well yes and no because even until the introduction of the uh, british um national curriculum you know just before the turn of this century there wasn't really anywhere written down what you should teach in primary or secondary, and especially primary. Primary was very, very open. Just it's like, the, from my understanding, and if somebody's listening and they say, no, you're totally wrong, we had a book. There was no book. There was no list of curriculum objectives. There until was, 20 years ago. Until 20 years ago. That is huge because, and I've said this before, we're only going through our third or fourth iteration of a national curriculum at this point. In the UK. In the UK and in most countries, like the Common Core is like only just been brought in in the States and it's the first nationwide curriculum. Now there were state curriculums, of course, but it's, we're, we're very early days in, in terms of this curriculum. We're off a little bit into the weeds there, but... Um, well, there's a distinction to be made because, yeah, Prussia didn't necessarily have... Um, nor did the states, or as you're highlighting, most other countries, they didn't maybe have a 
everybody in this country is learning these 20 things, but it did set up the requirement for each state to have its own set of standards and curriculum. Sure. And your example with like the common core in the United States or, you know, Canada, where I'm from, each province has its own curriculum. There isn't a Canadian curriculum. So there is still a, some diversity or difference between what might be on a curriculum um, at that state province kind of level, but the federal or the national government is saying you need to have this in place. Sure. And there will be links between the government and those state, um, like the education ministry will have an oversight over what each province does or each state or, um, and you know, we've talked a lot about curriculums in the past and hopefully we'll get a lot more into it because, um, it's one of the places people go to quickly, uh, curriculum. And it's like, well, have you read it? Do you know what's in it? Do you know the difference between, um, a curriculum that's skills based or knowledge based or a mix, but, Back for into, another day. For another day. For another day. But I just kind of want to, as these things pop up, I want to acknowledge them because I guess that's what this part of the podcast is kind of about, to be, yeah, but that brings up this idea. But, but of course, not get dragged off too far into that discussion. Um, okay, I cut so, off the list of curriculum. What, was, what else is on the Prussian characteristic list there? So the next thing I came to was this idea of the occupational preparation and how, um, and how this strong military and industrial hierarchy, the most obedient people got the best positions. And these are very high trust societies. And again, I'm kind of jumping forward from a modern point of view, being like, why doesn't this work? Why doesn't this work? And not being as objective as I probably should. I just want to point out these are very high trust societies. And what do you mean by that? I mean that um, uh, particularly Germany and Japan, like I read a book a few years ago by Francis Fukuyama, which is um, a a fairly conservative, conservative economist. And his point was that, these countries, Germany and Japan, the, the community society trust each other so much that the, um, this idea of self-discipline is ingrained very, very heavily because it, the belief is that if you are self-disciplined and if you do the right thing, I will do the right thing too, and we will have a very organized and a very strong society. That fundamentally is not the belief of most British people, um, Americans, Canadians, I would say. It's in there, but it's not the biggest thing. So, so I think just for the comparison, so a low trust society, what's their sort of motto? A low trust society, well, ironically, they are more inclusive because they're saying that we're, it's not just us. It's not just me and you and I trust you to the end and everybody else is on a lower level of trust. It's more like, well, well let's include everybody. Everybody's um, kind of on a, 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 an equal level of trust, but let's not trust anybody too much. It's, it's kind of, there's a compromise, like we're going to let more people into our group or we're going, it's going to be easier to integrate yourself into, a, <clears throat> into say, British society. I'm talking fairly broad and general stereotypical kind of ideas here. Um, 
and, and there's a place for disagreement, of course, but uh, it, you know, a Brit integration into British society, for example, um, we will let you in quicker. We will integrate you quicker. Maybe we will make you part of our friendship groups or our community, but we won't trust anybody as much because of that. So I think what I got from that book particularly was that these societies that are high trust, it's harder to get in, but once you're in, we just trust you. We trust that you are going to play our game and we'll play your game and we will succeed together. We will have a very strong society. Hmm. I think it is important as what well, as to why say this uh, model has continued in um, in Japan, for example, maybe Korea, China, and um, even to some extent in Germany, where we're both teaching right now. Um, again, th this this can of worms that we opened here is going off in a million directions, and I don't want to. I don't want to get us lost anywhere, but I think it's a point of looking at why it worked so well and why it works so well in some societies and not in others. Mm. Yeah. And again, as praise for this self-discipline centric school system, you exactly what you just said, you can influence a citizenry to be more reliable you can create a citizenry that trusts each other more. And, you know, on all levels, like you kind of take people for their word on things because it's believed that people will show that self-discipline and not be impulsive or, you know, just be in it to rip you off. The more trust you have, the more you can do together in a group, potentially. Um, so there is, that is one of the strengths of this. Yeah, and I think that is seen very much in the class um, struggles in Britain. It's because what you haven't pointed out that is in spiral dynamics, there are steps before blue. Mm -hmm. Blue is not where it starts. It's where schooling starts. So could you just very briefly talk about what the step, the one or two steps before um, blue is or self-discipline is? What are the values in those steps? And because that's what you're looking at in Britain when you start forcing kids to go to school. And it might be very different from a, a Prussian society that is already very self-disciplined or relatively self-disciplined. Um, yeah, so in the spirodynamics kind of steps here, the step before this kind of self-discipline model would be um, a stage of development that's more centered around impulsivity, um, around sort of winner-takes-all, the, you know, survival of the fittest, the strongest reap all the rewards. And there's basically winners and there's losers. And if you're the winner, you get to sit on top of the mountain for a while until someone else who's stronger or a group that gathers together takes you down, essentially. And you can see this in different social structures, different social dynamics, um, potentially like uh, different dictatorships where you can be in power till someone else overthrows you potentially in certain biker gangs where you can be the leader for a while until someone within your gang or another rival gang takes you out. And that's a way that people, groups, individuals organize themselves. Um, but interestingly, you don't see government-wide compulsory schooling showing up within those groups. 
there's definitely methods of education and methods of teaching knowledge and skills within those groups, but you don't see this approach to school arise within those kinds of countries, groups, regions. So it's um, only and if they when, do, it it arrives from an from an outside source attempting to impose this. But when you move up to this self-discipline centric side, as opposed to the power centric side of that previous stage, the self-discipline side says, like, you know what? You and all of us are way better off if you can tame those impulses. You and I potentially yeah. can share the spoils, and all of us can be doing much better off if we set aside our own personal agenda and contribute to a larger group's agenda here. Um, yeah. But what, and without but, spending another 10 hours on unpacking that, I'll just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to dig in too much either, but of course you lose something by losing that passion and that tribal nature. And also the next step will come to, which is about achievement looks like that in some ways, but hopefully we can show how it's not the same. And mm -hmm. the people say the, the orange or the achievement is dog eat dog. It's tribal. It's, it, but it's different. Mm -hmm. So we'll leave it at that, but because it does start to get naughty and I'm not clear on that either far from it, but it, it's, I just wanted to bring in that's like when you bring a, a, a hundred working class children from Wigan in, in 1870, and force them against their own will and against the will of their parents who want them working to go into the classroom. And that, that's going to present some real challenges and some real tensions within um, society. Because, yeah, it requires a submission on the part of the students to submit to the authority of that teacher. Yeah. So we said we would wrap this up at 60 minutes, which I think leaves us at about 10 um, Let's see what so we then, can do with 10 minutes. So, so Rob McLeod got back in his time machine. And I'll play the game here because I know that it exists in the 20th century. But let's imagine you've gone back in time to the schoolroom in 1870 or 1830 or whatever. The one-room schoolroom teaching the Prussian system. And you see it. Um, you've, you've said classroom organization, engineered for uniformity, uh, uniforms, national anthem, um, bells grouped by ages. Um, those are some of the key points that you've set out. Um, is there anything in there that you would uh, particularly want to dig into at this point? Just to point out that that's, that was the first blueprint we tried. That was the first prototype of what this kind of compulsory schooling might look like. And I thought you were setting me up there because each of those things you just mentioned, arguably you could still find in most schools in 2018. Yeah, I was kind of, but because I pushed the most controversial one after this, I want to come back to the one that jumped out at me and it is physical violence, but it's not only that. And it's my real question on the blue um, school, the, the self-disciplined school. Um, but I don't know if we'll get into it today because we do want to set out a little bit more the objectives as well. So, yeah, I'm setting you up a little bit because all of those still exist very heavily. So what I left out there was the physical punishment, but more importantly, the nature of humiliation, the dunce's cap. That's the one I dropped. Sitting in the corner of the room because you couldn't keep up. 
Now, I have experienced, even in 2018, a version of this where opening your mouth in certain school systems, in certain environments, being mocked. And I didn't, I think my school life didn't, it didn't, this didn't happen in Britain in the 1980s so much, but me standing up and opening my mouth or a child opening their mouth and being mocked by fellow students and even by the teacher for mistakes, um, in content, in grammar, in, in punctuation, in, um, in, um, even the way they speak and present themselves is very acceptable in a lot of these places. Um, of course, I mean, that for me is the big, a big um, issue in this system. Did you want to speak uh, to that at all? Yeah, like I think this is the teasing a part of what were the gifts of the self discipline centric education and what were the things that over time we've started to leave behind. And I'd agree, like, I, I wouldn't say my school experience was mocking or bullying free in terms of making mistakes. For sure, we all like razzed each other. That was part of a social norm, at least yeah. in my but schooling growing up. Like you're standing up in the middle of the room and you're reading and people are openly mocking you. And again, I didn't experience this, but I have seen it in my life as a teacher mm. and as a parent. Yeah. I, I would say in Canada, I did experience that okay. in class. Um, but I think that is one of those signs that it's something that's on the way out in most places. So I think the physical punishment and this mocking, the humiliation, the public shaming, I think yeah. that's the piece that's obviously work, working its way out if it hasn't already been worked out of a lot of places. But I think its shadow sure. is still there it it still has its fingerprints on a lot of things. And that's a, um, that's a, a mysterious statement to say shadow is still there. We won't get into it, but I mean, I, I think we will unpack that over the next few yeah, episodes. I definitely want to see that. So, um, but the gifts of it, like I wouldn't say school uniforms are a gift of it, but to be fair, um, I, you know, I was totally against school uniforms when I was younger there was talk of school uniforms being implemented in my high school. And mm -hmm. I had never been more religious about something in my life than the fight to go against school uniforms. And totally there's pros and cons of them. But one of the things I have seen it do is eliminate or at least greatly reduce the amount of social bullying regarding class, regarding um, what kids can wear what they can have. So I'd say some of these things you highlighted, like the school uniform, the national anthem, you know, pictures of authority figures on the wall. Um, maybe some of those aesthetics have shifted away, but I would still say that underlying value of self-discipline being important for you as a student in the school. Yeah. And having self-discipline later in your life as a citizen in the workforce and also for your own self-development is important. And, you know, to zoom out from this sort of like <clears throat> historical context, let's just put this in like 2018 hippie terms. Like sure. even if you're someone who just like loves whatever, I'm going to try and make a cartoon archetype here, but 
goes to the yoga. Store man, I believe we call them. Goes to yoga all the time. Is drinking your green smoothies, having whatever. If you're into meditation, but if you don't have the self-discipline to actually sit for 20 minutes a day or an hour a day, like your practice there is disadvantaged by a lack of self-discipline. Like, well, you're arguing though from the Thielman's perspective anyway, from the person who has integrated all of these and transcended to some extent to be able to see um, from that perspective, oh, that there's, there's something good in that. Well, more so what I want to say is it's not like as we shifted away from the aesthetics of this kind of school that this value was no longer needed. I'm saying that value is still needed. It's still there. Self-discipline yeah. being important, but maybe some of the aesthetics of how that was instilled have altered and changed over time. Yeah. And yet and some I of them are still totally lingering around. Well, self-discipline as, as an important value, absolutely key. And as you've just described there in that, in that kind of um, the, the meditation example, but yeah, it is how it was implemented in school. And it was the fact of acknowledging that shadow, that self-discipline is all well and good, but it has this um, this lurking thing behind it of what happens when you, when it's implemented top down and you decide you're not going to comply anymore. That is the big key here. And that's going to push on the next stages anyway, uh, to some extent. And that's where we're still out today. That idea of like, we know what's good for you. We know what's best for you. And you're like, yeah, I don't want that. We don't always want what's right. Uh, or what's good or what's best it's like there's other things going on so i think um hopefully we'll get to all of these issues later and we'll be able to unpick well there is another way to deal with it if there is some problem there it doesn't have to be instilled top down there is a room for negotiation or a place to actually look at its strengths and weaknesses. And that wasn't part of the self-discipline school. There was no room for a conversation or negotiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's the, me the methods to the end, like hitting kids is one way to develop self-discipline. It is not the only way to develop self-discipline, but yeah the self-discipline centric schools typically all had the whip on the wall or the, the lashing stick. Um, we kind of started the podcast with this, but one of my first mentors, um, Bill Pike, who is a principal who is retiring as I was entering the school system um, where I first started teaching in Canada. And I forget the exact year, but I think he said in like 1978, in Canada, the board office, when he first became a principal, sent him the board-issued strap that when he hits kids, he yeah. is supposed to use that strap and that strap alone, yeah. which that just baffles my mind. That Blessed by the Minister of Education, you know, <laughs> some kind of magical ritual. And anointed. Yeah, yeah. but um, where, yeah, where I wanted to go with that is just, yeah, that's one method of instilling self-discipline. But 
that was the only one that really the seemed to be one. used. That's key to this, isn't it? This is yeah. what was hurting McLeod when I heard him talk. It was like, it, there's a better way to do this. It's like that was in your voice with every, <laughs> every, every time you mentioned this kind of thing, I felt it in your voice. And you did a very good job of being clear and a very good job of being objective. But there was just something in there of like, there's a better way. There's a better way, blue man. And it's like, okay, so, but here's the one thing. A lot of these blue or self-disciplined societies do have fewer social problems. There is a harmony within the, the, the society. Um, it's not without its shadow and without its costs, but it, it does exist. And it is the thing that the 1950s blue, uh, sorry, rose tinted spectacles. Maybe Jordan Peterson is a, an example of this. Possibly we've talked, you know, we have a lot of talks about that guy looking back at that heyday of self-discipline. So maybe we can, before we just briefly talk about the next episode, maybe do, do you just want to touch on the one more time, that harmony within these blue self-disciplined societies or, or have we already said enough? Yeah. Well, again, I think this requires us to talk in really very broad, generalized terms about this. Um, so I don't, I don't want to go into details because any listener who knows their history can obviously like point out a handful of examples yeah, of like it wasn't that good. It yeah. wasn't that good. The Finnantin fifties were horrific for any minorities. It was a very oppressive time. Of course it is. And 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 it's easy to unpick those arguments. Um but I guess I was just giving the um the very, very broad conservative view there on these um societies. Yeah. My short answer to that would just be like typically that argument comes up when we say, hey, we have problems now that we in the past didn't have. Yeah. There are problems we're facing in 2018 that we didn't have and then name your era in the yeah. 70s, in the 50s, 150 years ago. We didn't have, 2000 years ago, we didn't have these problems. Exactly, yeah. And then it's the potentially more conservative idea that says like, we need to go back to that. Yeah. To me, in short, the short-sightedness of that is maybe we didn't have those problems then. The game also wasn't as complex as it is now. Yeah. And also it's Things filtered. have gotten more complex. It gets filtered. There's revisionist versions of how times were. There's yeah. huge generalized statements. So I, my short answer is like, sure, there might be something worth going back and looking at, but we're in a totally different context now. There's a reason why when you're a teenager or in your 30s or when you're a senior citizen that you don't go back to the things that helped you solve problems when you were an infant or a toddler. Like sure. things get more complex over time. What used to work doesn't necessarily work in the new situation. Of course. I mean, the idea of make America great again and uh, great for who? Yeah, so it was a bit of a setup question to get to give me a chance to say like <laughs> things were pretty bad for most people prior to this. So it is a very selective point of view to say, oh, the nineteen twenties were a fine time for education. Um, hopefully, we've been objective to some extent in this podcast, but it's 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 impossible to hide the fact that we've got there's some real real. Um, some 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 real tension in this conversation about a uh, self-disciplined school. Um, yeah, 
And I, I would leave this here to set up our next episode, just to say yeah. if our description of this has seemed cartoonish, if our description of a self-disciplined centric school has seemed cartoonish, yeah, that's partly what we're doing here. Like we're, you and I are essentially attempting to take like 200 plus years of yeah. schooling and distill it down to basically four parties that are in conflict with each other. You have to do a lot of buffing around the edges and a lot of, of big grand sweeping statements in order to do this. My argument and my hope, I think our hope, is by laying out this map or this framework that we're looking to lay over top of this, we can then from here go down into the details level in a much more strategic way than yeah. we're currently talking about education from. So I think we're still setting the table. And I think over these next three episodes, we're going to make very cartoonish and borderline archetypal, um, sim overly simplified, most zoomed out image on Google map level of resolution, uh, stories of education. Of course. But yeah. then we can then take those sort of four basic ingredients and begin to look at how those ingredients are used across very different recipes of what education looks like around the world. And the key point also being that we're, we're doing this to um, look for the best, most appropriate, um, uh, the, the, the real, the things within education that we want to keep and the things that we feel we want to develop more in our practice and in the systems we work in. So it has a practical use. We're not just setting out uh, a bunch of history or talking about conflicts. It is. It has a purpose for us to improve our teaching and the systems that we work within. Yeah, that's the aim. I mm. think. Yeah, my assumption is we're just at a point in time where it's worth looking at school. It's worth looking at a school education and seeing if we made some tweaks or just completely reinvented, how much better could that serve individuals, society, the workforce, how we spend our lives while we're here on this rock for a handful of decades. Yeah, I think we don't, we, we kind of, that is, that is our key that is kind of like woven into what we're saying, but the more we can be explicit about that, the better. So that was a, that was a long one there, McLeod. That was, uh, I think an hour and 10 or so. Um, great times. And if you're still with us, hopefully it's been good times for you too. I hope so. Yeah, please um, interact with us on the Facebook uh, group that we've set up um, and there'll be other ways to um, interact that we will roll out over the next few episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's actually a beautiful thing to see. If you go on Facebook and type in reinventing education, there are a handful of groups who've have, who are based in different parts of the world who have kind of different approaches to this. But if you look up reinventing education podcast, you can find us, but Totally. Also check out the other ones as well. There's some people doing some really interesting work out there already. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that, Rob. Have a good uh, rest of your day in Belgium. Thank you, Brennan. You in Germany as well. And 
looking forward to talking about the next value of ambition and oh, yeah. the achievement-centered education, which I think is going to be an interesting one because so much of what we're about to say about this value of education is yeah. just what we think school is. Essentially, I mean, this is not, we could just carry this on for the next 10 hours, but yeah, the next one ambition, that is that is the dominant value and has been for the last NX amount of years. So let's wrap this up now and go into the, the sunshine. And um, is that good for you? This works. Thanks, Brennan. Have a good day, Rob. 